Good afternoon and welcome to WEHC 90.7 and you just tuned in to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock and we are so glad you are here. We're going to continue talking about leadership but today we're going to talk a little bit about leadership uh, with the backdrop or the groundings of intersectional feminists and we're going to go just a little bit further and tie that to justice. Carly that sounds like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It is a lot. We will see where we end up by the end of this episode. (laughs) That sounds like a whole lot. Well and and I know that sometimes we like definitions and so we may not have a whole bunch of real solid definitions, but talking points and places and things for for us to go. I mean, if we started all the way back with leadership, I kind of fancy myself as a leadership expert. My leadership is primarily about character. It's about leading and living with character. But when you start to go back and you look at some of the management leadership, um, you know, there's all kinds, servant leadership, there's uh, leadership is really followership. You know, there's all kinds of ways that it's tied. I can't think of anything right now. Carla, can you think of all kinds of other words? Uh, I see servant leadership. What are some words that are tied to leadership that people think about? There's actually a definition for leadership in this article that we're going to be referencing. Okay, share, share, share Um, with our audience and me. So the article that we're using as as a jumping off point today is Leadership for Social Justice, Practicing Intersectional Feminism, by Helena um, for disorient.co, which is a website about activism. And the leadership definition they use um, is at its core, leadership refers to the practice of social influence and change. It seeks to direct the consciousness and actions of people towards a vision, which I think is a great definition. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess it would help us to look at all of that social analytical uh, ways that people interact because if you have a leader then the assumption is that you have followers mm-hmm, right. so you cannot lead without followers one of the quotes that I say is that um, you know see who's following you and you'll be able to see what type of leader you really are and then I also say in one of my quotes is leader people will not follow a leader they cannot touch and so I imagine from social justice as we're going to be talking about today that's really an up close and personal way of leadership. You cannot lead from afar and it be activism. And I'm a real proponent of how important activism is from an intersectional perspective, because, you know, I, I, in my dissertation research, I use the four A's. I use uh, agitation. I use agency. I use advocacy and I use activism. So I'm really excited as we look through this today and, and tying it to social justice, because Mm -hmm. Um, especially in our disruptive world. And we've talked about disruptive leadership before. We won't go back and define it. Eh, Well, we may as we come along, but uh, just grassroots, all of our systems that are established and and when the status quo is broken and it's no longer going the way that it was originally intended to go by the powerful and you have a disruption, then some type of social change has to come from that. And many people, as we've talked about in the past, want to go back to the status quo and try to hurry and scurry and try to return it back to the way it was and get as stable and all that. And and I, I'm a proponent of saying it with with COVID, with all the anti-racism kinds of issues, with the, the human sexuality challenges, all those things, we can never go back, quote unquote, yeah. to the way it was. So uh, I'm excited to hear some of what um, this person says uh, in this article. Yeah, and it's perfectly in line with what you're talking about. So the first two points that this article makes, which I think are very powerful, is leadership is a social construct. 
and that leadership is shaped by power, um, by systems of power in particular. Mm -hmm. So the first is basically that, you know, when you try to figure out what leadership is or what makes a good leader, the more that you dig into that, the more confusing it gets and the more, you know, different answers you get based on people's cultural experiences and their own ideas and things like that. Basically, there isn't a, there is not one sort of, this is a leader, right? But what's happened is over time, especially in Western history and Western culture, leadership has been historically shaped by imperialism, whiteness, and patriarchy. And what this article says is at the, at the center of leadership theory stood the figure of the autonomous European man for whom leadership gloriously inanimated. He represented orderliness, rationality, and self-control. Um, and then, of course, when we tie that to colonization, you know, that the others, the colonized people represented chaos, irrationality, and violence, which is why the leader had to come in and establish order, rationality, and self-control, right? That's the logic as skewed and horrible as it is. Yeah. So and many, that, go ahead. Well, no, you go ahead. I was just going to say that logic still persists today. Now we may not use it in the same way, but when we think of a good leader, quote unquote, what do we think of? Someone who's rational, quote unquote, someone who's orderly, quote unquote, right? <laughs> and and for the most part, someone who is male, because yeah. you take those same characteristics that sometimes we attribute to leaders like, you know, charisma or assertiveness or having money or being high ranking, you know, all of those things, most of those characteristics are all male. And when females or, or people who identify as woman and female, when they exhibit those same characteristics, it's not looked upon favorably. So those same things can look on a man one way and look on a woman another way. Yes, absolutely. This sort of self-control, quote unquote, or like rationality is desirable in male leaders, but can be considered cold or distant in female leaders, right? Mm -hmm. And then the next kind of argument this article makes is that, you know, because of these reasons, we shouldn't be uncritical um, of what we consider to be leaders and leadership, and also that we shouldn't idolize people just because they're in a position of leadership. Um, whether that's political, because um, I think this article is more leaning into like presidents and congress members and things like that, um, mm -hmm. you know, that we should be critical of people who are in a position of power and that are in quote unquote leadership positions, right? Because the whole concept of leadership has this bedrock underneath it. Oh, yeah. And and I think, you know, when you when you think about this whole, you know, kind of uh, I read an article once and it said something like uh I, don't, I can't quote it, but it talked about that uh, leadership was fundamental. Is it was like a fundamental resource or something for group survival. And I remember thinking about that from a white, from the lens of white supremacy, because I think sometimes that need, desire, whatever you call it, I am not white, so I can't. I don't want to try to, you know, give things to other people. But it, it appears to be the the desire. It really for for a lot is about. Uh, a perception of survival. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got to stay powerful. I've got to stay in charge. You're not smart enough. You, you're dumb. You know, you're, you're too weak. You're, you know, whatever the reasons are that they use, but it really is about having that one group to survive in a powerful dominant way. And I remember when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, if we do look at that, then, then that's why, 
you know, until brown people, BIPOC people, other people, and, you know, differently abled people until they get in quote unquote positions of power. And I know some people hate that, but until they get into those same types of positions as the powerful, the, those that are perceived powerful, then we can't survive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it, that was one of those aha moments because you think about it. I mean, that's that's how these systems and especially a system like white supremacy has survived. It is built on this notion or this concept of leaders and people having to follow so much so that during the period of enslavement and the colonization, they were willing to disempower, marginalize, franchise an entire group of people based on the color of their skin and then construct, like you said earlier, I want us to talk a little bit about that, Carly, when we start talking about leadership as a social contract, well, construct, well, so is race, mm -hmm. you know, so all of these systems are uh, set up on on, on certain factors. And, and as long as you can maintain them, you can keep the status quo. So if you tell everybody that men are leaders, or you tell everybody that uh, white people are leaders and that everybody else is not, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, then it just keeps repeating itself. And so there's where the power lies in that leader. And then uh, forced followship. I don't know about you, but I've had bosses before and I'm like, I'm smarter than them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's not now. I don't want anybody to think that I'm talking about my boss now. But in the past, I've had situations and circumstances where, you know, I've known that the person who was my boss had inevitably been done. What I think they call it the Peter principle, promoted to a level higher than their competency. But they were there and all of the system was set up to keep them there. Well, yeah. And I mean, even as this article, you know, kind of talks more about politicians and things like that. I mean, you know, I think it was very handily illustrated when the, you know, Roe versus Wade debate, you know, is it going to be overturned? Is it not going to be overturned? And, you know, congressmen were being asked about, you know, atopic pregnancies and things like that. And they had no idea what they were talking about. They didn't even know right. what it was. And so here are people making laws that govern, you know, our bodies, women's bodies that don't even know what our bodies do, what the process is, right? And again, it goes back to that because you've put people in power who don't know what it's like to have, you know, the lived experience of being a woman. Here's where we are. Right. I was trying to find that article just so I could quote it, but part of it, I remember part of it had in there, um, it talked about that you know, personality is really a part of leadership. And we see that really, really all the time. Just as I said earlier, the same attributes or characteristics that a male leader exhibits in a woman or female, they are looked at, you know, totally like toxic, like, you know, you shouldn't do that. Yeah. You shouldn't be like that, you know, and yet they're, they're, they're perceived when men have it as one of the things that they need to be, to be a leader. And uh, I'll try to find a quote who this is, but it was talking about, personality. And, and they said that within the personality that you have to have leadership, there are two parts of that. And one part was identity and another part was reputation. Mm -hmm. And so they said that the identity uh, of our personality uh, from an inside view is formed by the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and the image we want to project in the world. And then it went further and talked about reputation and said, it's our personality from an outside view formed by others uh, observation of how we behave. And I mean, you can walk into a room 
and deference will be given to a white male. Yeah. And they don't have to be quote unquote, the boss or the leader, but the assumption is that they are always that I've been, I've been a boss before and, and especially in, in clergy and I've been a boss before and I would have people and I had a, a white guy that worked for me and we would show up to do, I was a consultant at the time and we would show up and many times the people would speak directly to him and look at me like I was decoration or something. Yeah. And he was, he was really quote unquote woke, or he really knew that I paid him. I don't know which it was, but he was very quick to let them know that, uh, uh, that, that was not, that I was the person that they needed to talk to and not him. But you know what, Carly, invariably, they would still come around. And sometimes even when it was time for payment, they would give him the paper, the check. Right. It was during, during a time everything wasn't electronic and they would slip the check to him. Yeah, I mean, and I think most women um, who have been in leadership positions like you would have very similar stories and experiences. So one thing I wanted to highlight in this article is so they, they transitioned from talking about leadership to talking about what that would look like from an intersectional feminist perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so the article says, intersectional feminist leadership is directed towards a vision that seeks to dismantle interlocking systems of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, cis heteronormative, and patriarchal oppression, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, that says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And then it breaks it down further into like, here are some active things you can do to do that. Right. Um, so the first is, you know, advance the aims of ending all oppression and exploitation, center marginalized people, especially black, indigenous women of color, focus on leading the ongoing process of listening, learning, collaboration, coordination and social change rather than leaders. And then the last point is nurture the collective over the individual. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of their four pillars of that work. And all those that fall, like they, they smack the white male dominant patriarchal leader in the face with all of those ideas, collaboration, collective leadership, nurturing, centering othered people. I mean, those are, those are not looked at as good qualities and they're not looked at as uh promotable quality. So you have many people who are, who think that leadership, you know, is almost really about like dictatorship. Yeah. And I love the, the focus on leading versus leaders because I mm -hmm. think people get confused sometimes and they think, oh, well, should we, we not have leadership at all? And I, I definitely don't think that's what this article is saying. It's just saying we need to approach it in a different way. And, you know, working with people's strengths, working collaboratively, you know, you might be leading this particular project, I might be leading a different particular project, um, but we're not focused on us as leaders, quote unquote, we're, we're leading, you know, a, a group of people to do something, right, to accomplish something. And I think that's a much better, better focus. And in this case, if we're looking at, you know, social transformation, if we're looking at uh, one of the things that United Methodist, one of our missions, uh, you know, our, our big mission statement is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And everybody everywhere can recall that and they know it. But but what they don't think about is that transformational process. Yeah. You know, and in leadership. I think that is critical because, you know, social transformation would mean that our world doesn't look like it's looked for the last 
400 years or the last 200, you know, 300, 150, you know, uh, 25 years. It looks so different and, and, and it's constantly changing. And, and what is necessary for that to do, for that change to happen is for us to uh, look at the way we do or we, who we say are leaders and how we do it, how we go about doing it. And a lot of that is tied to, from a capitalist perspective, is tied to income. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It definitely is. I know this article is talking about activism in particular, but those pillars still would work within a business, right? That's bringing in money. Um, it's just going to require people to think about it in a different way. And one of the things... Um, it says is uh, leadership is understood as the as simply the means to achieve the vision of social transformation. Basically, using leadership as a tool. It's not the end all be all. It's not we need to appoint the perfect leader for this position. It's just a tool to help us to accomplish a vision. And if we need to rework what that leadership looks like, we are open to doing that. Right. Um, right. And I think that's a really great way to approach it. Yeah, because if we're going to do anything, uh, you know, this whole intersectional piece in the workplace, I mean, it, it really, I mean, we can get away with calling it diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, or we could use that as the starting point for us to turn this around or to enter into this transformative process. I mean, first, it's the recognition that we need and want, this is Sharon Bowersism, so don't blame that on that wonderful article that you have, but I, I firmly believe, you know, we have to kind of say, um, do we, we got to recognize that we need and want diversity and that diversity is better. And we have to take the statistics mm -hmm. that tell us that and all the research that suggests that performance is better when, you know, you have diversity, yeah, equity. I mean, we start having to look at things like um, salaries, you know, who makes what and why do they make what they make and how is that and how can we get on the same, how can we make them, you know, how can we deal with this parity that that exists, you know, um, and, and I mean, inclusion is just kind of that real simple thing, like you are welcomed and you have agency and I, what you say matters and, and it's not from a token perspective and I value your opinion, you know, those kinds of things. And then ultimately, this whole thing of looking looking at belonging, it is really hard to to have a, a hierarchical way and see yourself as being part of a team. You really need collaboration and you know collective leadership in order to say it is ours instead of you do what I say. And and I think you know uh, an intersectional feminist perspective would try to take care of all of those. And 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 obviously, I I, I don't ever I, I always forget about disability or being differently abled. And I don't mean to do that. It it just almost is part and parcel. But I need to do better better at that. But you know when we when we talk about gender and race and sexuality and uh you know uh differently abled people, all of that kind of stuff, it is. It requires from an intersectional perspective that we deal with those systems that uh, display uh, a disparity in in interaction, in social interaction, because we talked about it being social analytical and transformation. Yeah, absolutely. Transformational. Yeah. Um, and I think along the same lines of what you're saying, you know, this article goes on to say, you know, intersectional feminist leadership is non-hierarchical, like you yeah. said profoundly humanizing, yes, relational, 
It's critically reflexive, which they describe to mean that we must always be decolonizing our own brains, which I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it says um, it seeks to bring about social transformation. So those are kind of the the elements of what they're describing as intersectional feminism. Yeah, I think so, I I think it's amazing when you put leadership and you put intersectional feminists together mm-hmm. for social transformation you know it's almost like this plus this equals this or can equal this because uh you know identity politics definitions of who somebody is or who somebody is not words the way we describe people all of those kinds of things are critical for leadership and and you know most people who come to the table in our offices come or to the workplace, let's say, because it's not always an office, but to the workplace, come with multiple identities. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can be, I mean, just think about all, I mean, if we if we had time and I know we don't, but if we had all the possibility of the combinations of people, I mean, I could be black. I could identify as a woman. I could be part of the LGBT plus uh, community. I could be differently abled. You know, I could even come from uh, outside of the United States. I mean, and that's just one person that comes to the table and then then taking in all of my my other social agents, how they have socialized me and all those kinds of things. I mean, that's just one person who comes to the table with all of that. I know my family of origin might matter whether I come from, you know, two parent household or one parent household, whether I come from you know, two parents that are same gender loving. I mean, it just goes on and on. I know you're exactly right. So it's important for us to have that whole, you know, that leadership perspective. And so in the article that you shared, are we then saying, I mean, I gave that kind of like, are we saying leadership plus intersectionality equals social transformation? Is that, is that, is that too corny? No, I think that's, that's right. Um, they're basically saying that whatever leadership position, you know, someone is occupying or whether or not they are within an organization or a workplace or whatever, that the goal should always be social transformation. Um, you know, there might be other goals, too, that your group is trying to accomplish or your workplace is trying to accomplish. But at the end of the day, that needs to be paramount for everyone. So then if we use intersectional leadership, intersectional feminist leadership better would be better. But if we use that, then we are automatically moving toward um, transformation mm-hmm. because that's not what the systems look like. So right. we're saying we're going to disrupt, we're going to dismantle, we're going to reframe, we're going to reimagine. We're saying all of those words about systems as they exist. And so, um, you know, for leaders, leaders really have to look at power and privilege and all of those other words and how we are affected by it. I think that's yeah. critical. No, you're exactly right. And I think one of one of the most revolutionary parts of this article um, says that, you know, intersectional feminist leadership is profoundly humanizing. The organization or collective holds space for your whole self beyond you as a resource, quote unquote, whose primary purpose is to produce value for an organization. Your personal life, your body, your needs, your abilities or disabilities are embraced and nurtured and you should feel seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, I, I would, and I would add seen and heard. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> seen, seen and heard, because it's one thing to be there, but not have the agency that goes with, with being there. Yeah. I think it's Audrey Lord, and there's some other, because, you know, my work is, is intersectional. So I, I, I'm sure Audrey Lord wasn't the first one, although uh, they may have been the for, first one. But uh, I remember there was a quote where they talked about they they said that there is no single there's no such thing as a single issue struggle mm -hmm. because we do not lead single issue lives. Yes. And that's Audrey Lord said that. And so just like when I was going through all the things that I could be at the yeah. table, uh, all of those are are not. I'm not singly one. And that's what intersectionality is all about. And that's Crenshaw bringing that together and, and naming it and all the other people, like all the way back as far as our, our show, She Walks with Sojourner Truth is that I don't present, you don't present, we don't present as a single axis mm -hmm. person. We yeah. come with multiple, multiple. Yes, absolutely. And I love that this, leadership model that's being proposed here <laughs> that into account, right? Um, and is very aware. And and also I think the point about decolonizing <laughs> brains, that's brilliant because oh, yeah. we, all of us, um, even if there are those of us that come from marginalized groups, still have that colonization mindset in our brains. Most oh yeah. And it takes a long time to, to dismantle that. And we've been socialized. Let me, let me just, I know we got to go, but I want to tell you this. Go. <laughs> I, I want to, I want to just tell this one story and, and I want, I want your response to it. You know, on my Facebook page, sometimes I put different things. And so I talk about the white gaze, you know, I talk about some of the things that we talk about on here. And the other day I was doing some additional research on Sojourner Truth. And I came across a quote that said, white people need to be pricked. Mm. And I, I gathered what she was saying is, you know, you you need to touch, put a hole in it, prick it, you know, make them feel, let them know something's going on. Well, anyway, one of my parishioners from a church that I serve who was white, the whole, everyone in my churches that I serve now are white. And, and she sends a message on Facebook and says, I had to look up what white gaze meant. Mm -hmm. And she said, I am so sorry that you don't like white people. Ooh. Can you believe that? Yeah, I mean, I can. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, yeah. that cultic generalization that what I said, you know, was universal. Yes, right. I mean, it, it goes back to like what we've talked about before with like the not all men, quote unquote, right? Yes. Um, it, if you criticize a system that you're criticizing everybody within that system and right. or that, you know, you being bringing up something like the white gaze is you not liking white people like that yeah. making that connection doesn't make make any sense but and, and I, I didn't have anything else to, to do except to send back and say I like white people I love white people and then yeah. I talked with her about her travels and said hey I, are you doing good traveling and let it go because I thought there is nothing that I can say to that person that would help them. I don't even know how, and and they haven't been at church forever. Yeah. So I, I, that's the first time I saw a comment. And I guess that comment is them not boycotting coming to church. So I, I know I said all that, but, but that's the whole, when we're talking about intersectional leadership and we're talking about something that can lead to, to social transformation. I mean, how do we, how do we do that when people who are part of a dominant or a majority group Re interpret 
white people need to be pricked. Sojourner Truth, not Sharon Bauer said that. <laughs> yeah, I. that's a great question. You always ask these wonderfully profound questions when we have like two minutes left in the show. <laughs> but what I will say is, you know, I think going back to kind of what we've been talking about with leadership and approaching leadership from this intersectional feminist place of doing the work of decolonizing our understandings of things, our brains, right? Decolonizing our experiences allows us the space to have those conversations, which of course requires that somebody's in the headspace to do the work in the first place, which not every and, and, and their desire to do it and not looking at it like it's taking away. And there's where we didn't get a chance to talk about a whole lot, but that's that whole power piece yes. that is built into intersectionality. And so, you know, I love this topic, Carly. I'm glad that you brought it. And I hope our, our listening audience does too, but I'd like to kind of keep talking about it a little bit, shaping it, you know, yeah. all under that whole intersectional feminist uh, perspective. Yeah, I think we should definitely stay on this topic for a little while. And maybe next episode, we can talk more about, you know, what that work actually looks like, the decolonization work, but also the deconstruction of those, you know, systems that have been in place for forever. How do you practice a model like this under systems like that? And I think we can dive into that a little bit more. Sounds, um, sounds great. Sounds like a winner. <laughs> I hope our audience wants to do that. I hope y'all want to do that because it sounds great to me. It sounds exciting to me. I may be the only one in the room, Carly, that's excited about it, but it's exciting to me. No, it's exciting to me too. So <laughs> hopefully you all will be on board and, um, you know, feel free to send us a message and let us know if there's topics you would like us to cover as always, but we appreciate you being with us today for this talk and we will see you all again next week. Bye everybody.